Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. So many of us undervalue our own experience, and we overlook the wisdom that can assist us daily. These habits of self-sabotage can knock the wind out of our sails and leave us grasping and searching for things that we've already realized. One way to overcome this is to view our life as an epic adventure and become aware of the transformation we experience as we go through the peaks and valleys of life. To help us find inspiration, I invited Amy Adelstein. Amy Adelstein is the author of six books, including the award-winning The Conscious Classroom, founder of the nonprofit Inner Strength Education, and recipient of a Philadelphia Social Innovators Award. Amy's work has empowered 17,000 teens in under-resourced schools with mindfulness and systems thinking. During our conversation, Amy will share what she learned during an epic journey she took in 1983 when she journeyed to the remote western corner of the Tibetan Plateau in Sanskar, India. She also offers ideas on how to view our own life as a journey so we feel empowered and immersed in the richness of everyday living. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. How are you? I am doing terrific. It is so lovely to connect with you today. I just finished reading your uh, your new memoir, Adventure in Sunscar. And I have to say, I felt like I was part of your adventure because it's it's so detailed and I could picture everything, everything that you described in it. And I, I just really enjoyed it. I love hearing that. When I The reason why I wrote it was I wanted to give everyone else a taste of the adventure that I had. And I wanted them to share in the delights and the insights and the people that I met. So I really... It warms my heart to hear you say that. I wanted people to feel like they had been there, especially during that special time. Yeah. All right. So I'm excited to discuss the book and uh, also the wisdom and the epiphanies that you had during your trip, because there were many. And uh, also how we can apply what you learned uh, in our own personal adventures. Um, so let's start by talking about your intention for going on this journey. Uh, what made you decide to go on this adventure to Sanskar, which was halfway across the world? I was always motivated from a very young age to seek that which had meaning 
and purpose. And I was always looking for people who seemed to know the secrets of the universe, shall I say, who seemed to be able to capture what was important about life. And those were the people that I wanted to see. That's Those were the places that I wanted to go to. And I found myself at the beginning of 1983 in India, which was a story in and of itself. But once I was there, where I spent the better part of four years, I spent a lot of time in the northern states of India, studying, doing meditation retreats, and also trekking in the mountains. I grew up in a city in America, and I just wanted to spend as much time as I could in the high mountains. They called to me and... Being there is its own sort of retreat and meditation challenge. So when I went to Zanskar, I went because it's the oldest Buddhist valley in the world. It became Buddhist before Tibet was Buddhist. Um, they say, some say as early as the second century AD. It's not, it's not that well known. But what's interesting about Zanskar is it's a protected valley ringed by very high mountains. So life there had basically been unchanged for hundreds, practically thousands of years. The Tibetans had come into the valley in, you know, sort of between 1200, 1500, and the religion moved from the type of Buddhism they practiced and the type of Bon religion they practiced more to styles of Tibetan Buddhism, but it was all very... Uh, synchronous and it worked well together but the life there had been very steady and I wanted to see what it was like to be in a place that had not suffered huge wars or ethnic conflicts in the way that other Buddhist countries had I wanted to feel what it was like to be in an area of the world that practice teachings of renunciation and equanimity and non-attachment and compassion and the aspiration to awaken and whatever that meant to awaken, because there are a lot of ways to understand that term. And that's why I went there. So I went on my own with whatever I could carry on my back. I didn't have porters or horses or guide. I mean, it, it sounds like it was physically challenging. And I, I mean, were you prepared for that? Were you a mountaineer prior to, to this, uh, to this track that you did? Well, I had a much younger body in those days. But <laughs> <Okay. laughs> sometimes that's not enough, Amy. Like, you know, you have to train it. <laughs> I didn't train, but I had been in Nepal for, for a few months and I had been in Himachal Pradesh and, and in Kashmir. So I was more accustomed to high elevations Okay. The the valley floor of Zanskar is 3000 meters above sea level, which is quite high already and then you go up from there. So I went up over 5100 meters so I would cross passes and um but they were all footpaths. Uh you didn't need mountaineering equipment. Um and you just needed to put one foot in front of the other and have a lot of endurance and not too big a fear of heights. Was there ever a time when you said, that's it, I, I can't go any further? I didn't have that choice. I didn't have that option because once you're in the middle of the valley, 
you have to cross the mountains to go in to go out either way. So oh, I see. Even if I backtracked, I would have to cross mountain paths because you're going up and down and up and down over the mountains. So there was no, yeah, it was, it, yeah, I could have switched routes, but it wouldn't have really made a difference. So I never really considered that. And I never felt, I mean, I, there were days I felt absolutely exhausted and there were. Yeah, and you were sick too. I was sick as well, which is par for the course, I think, when you're you know, living, you know, a very rustic life. And, um, but I think what carried me was I was, it wasn't just a mountaineering expedition. It was really an expedition to understand the nature of the mind and thought and the way we're influenced by our thoughts and the way that if we decide something's hard and we're not up for it, the mountain feels much steeper. And if we are feeling very uplifted and confident, then, then the mountain doesn't seem as steep and it's the same mountain. The only thing that's different is your own mind. And that's what I was there to do. So I was there to put into practice what I had been learning on various meditation retreats and different systems and schools that I'd been studying in and to see how it all worked in my own experience. Right. And you were probably in an altered state of consciousness when you were, you know, uh, when you were up the mountain. I mean, I would imagine like just being away from civilization and being at such a high elevation and, and your body is trying to, you know, acclimate to those new environments. Was that the case? There were times when I had very powerful experiences of what you describe as altered consciousness or a sense of non-duality and a sense of immediacy, this, the profundity, you know, when everyone, you know, Ram Dass famously said, be here now. And everyone talks about the power of now, the, the power of the pause being present in the moment. And that you have to be right. You have to be when you're you have to be there, yeah. but there's also another aspect where at times you slip behind your thoughts and you experience this, the potency and the, the, the fullness of, and the immediacy of what people call the present moment or what people call the self-absolute. And that was certainly, I had had experiences of that throughout my life, but being in uh, such a simplified environment like that, it was much easier for those experiences to come to the forefront and to be able to enjoy them because there wasn't there wasn't a busy world. I live in an East Coast city in America, so I don't have to watch out for <laughs> the cars on the corner about to run me over, or, um, you know, all the 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 demands on your attention that pull you out of that kind of reflection. So I definitely felt in, and the other part of, of being in the mountains is your life becomes very simple. You walk, you make a fire, you cook some tea, you cook some food, you walk more, you see stones, you see snow, you see river, you see sky. And occasionally you meet a few people who live in villages all that all look similar. They, the houses are the same shape. They're made of the same material. Everybody dresses the same. Um, 
so it's it's very uh, almost monochromatic, which allows your mind to settle down and slow down. Wow. And you mentioned that you met people along the way. Um, uh, I'm curious to know, what, what what was your experience like interacting with all these people um, who were essentially so so different from you, you know, different different cultures, different ethnic groups. So what did your interaction interactions with them teach you about uh, the commonalities and the differences that we share as, as human beings? I really felt, I loved the Zanskari people. I found, I loved all of my time in the different states in India. So, um, but I particularly love the Zanskaris because the women and men are much more equal. So the women are very strong. They are, they really have in a lot of ways, a much more prominent role in the family. And then so it's a matriarchal. It's not exactly matriarchal, but because through the monastic system, boys are much more valued than girls. Um, But because it is a a subsistence culture and they have many months of winter, which during winter, the Zanskaris often travel. So they take their horses and the rivers freeze. So they go up the rivers by horseback and they go as far as Turkey. And it's kind of amazing. So it's very far. The men can be gone three, four months at a time. So women can marry up to four men. And they often marry the brothers. But what you see in that is you see that there's a certain quality of independence and, and quality of uh, strength that they have, because you don't usually see that in cultures. And you you very much see shared workload. The men will cook and the women will cook. There isn't that same strong separation of roles that there are in some of the other cultures of that region that I saw. So I felt very, um, I felt very at home there because I was a young woman who was very strong and independent and didn't like to be subservient to anyone. So that's why I went there on my own when I was 21. Um, and the other thing I loved about them is that they were so, uh, unbelievably kind and easy. I know I spoke some Hindi, I spoke some Urdu, I spoke some Tibetan, and I spoke some very little Zanskari. So I was good at sort of figuring out what people were saying. Of course, I don't remember much of the language now, but I was able to get along with the families and understand the more simple things. And so we would have conversations. And what always impressed me when I was with families who were undergoing hardship, whether it was, there were these two sisters, one had lost her husband and she was very, she was, she was older. um, And she was very sad about having Mm -hmm. lost her husband. And the other sister was kind of very strong with her and was giving her Buddhist teachings and basically saying, look, we're all going to die everyone's going to die at some point in their life. You you know, your husband was a good man. He had a long life. You have to let, you have to let him go. If you, if you grasp after him, you're, you're actually going to prevent him from taking a better rebirth because you're going to be pulling him back to this earth. (laughs) She's very, she's very firm. 
uh, with her sister. And I found that the depth of the Buddhist teachings was so interwoven in everyone's life and the way that they dealt with problems that it created a sense of equanimity and calm and a greater context for our life and understanding of cause and effect of the karmic repercussions of our actions. If we're greedy now, we're going to, we're going to reap negative uh, consequences in the future. And if we're generous now, it's going to help everyone. And that was just steeped in how they were. And that really taught me a tremendous amount. Oh, that's beautiful. And how many societies are like that nowadays? I mean, is, is Sanskar still like that? Is everything still intact? The culture and the so. purity of their culture? Back. No, I have not been back. Um, as I was writing the book, I, I watched, there were a couple of documentaries that have been filmed there since. And I found it quite sad that um, as the as they built roads, as more tourists went in, as India, the middle class in India started to travel more to these remote regions, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of materialism and consumerism came with them. And in some of these more recent documentaries, I heard Zanskari's talking about how poor they were or how little they had or and I found out monasteries had closed and schools had closed because they were no longer sending one child to the monasteries and nunneries and so within 30 years or it's 40 years since I was there but within the last particularly 20 years the culture has really changed and not for the better and it's not that modernization is always bad. I think that, you know, obviously the Zanskaris can benefit from a lot that we understand about hydroelectric power and solar power. So they could have warmer houses and running water and they can build with passive solar mm -hmm. uh, principles in a way that would retain their native architecture but the move towards a money economy has really upset the natural balance and it's moved them away from what gave what what they were so rich to me coming from america i saw them as infinitely wealthy yeah. you know with with very a abundant kind of, yeah a kind of moral depth and dimensionality and yes. happiness and love and carefreeness and and that's, joy. that's so priceless isn't it yeah and the west has a lot to learn from cultures yeah. like that so um i know that there are some local movements that are trying to preserve and retain the culture but the pressure mm -hmm. is high Interesting. Um, I kind of had a feeling that would have been the case because I'm like, there's no way that they wouldn't be touched by uh, consumerism and modernization in some in some form. I mean, it's just that's just the direction that the world is taking right now. Yeah. So. Well, we have you know there are cell phones now and internet, so you're not remote in the same way that you were before. Correct. Amy, let's talk about some of the some of the things that you learned when you were out there, uh, you mentioned that some of the key principles of perennial wisdom that you learned while living in Sanskar are interconnectedness, 
impermanence, non-grasping, and generosity. Um, can you please tell us more about, about all of those? Those are fundamental principles which you find um, in pretty much every Eastern philosophy in a different way and also yeah. embedded in Western philosophical approaches, although you have to dig a little bit more to find them. And what's what's interesting about being in a culture like that is you really see that people took care of one another and recognized on a very instinctual level their impact on one another. So a common phrase that they'll say is that um, we all have to live together. So they don't really get irritated with each other or greedy or have these petty disputes because you're in a village of 10, 15 houses and everyone has to live together. So you let things go. And that, that pointed to those deeper principles that all of our actions have consequences. And we may be upset right now. We may want to express our frustration with another. The way we do that is going to set something in motion. So are we doing that with skillful means? Are we taking care to uplift the situation or are we just venting because we're irritated because somebody took our parking spot or cut us off on the, on the highway? And those kind of petty reactions, you know, which is our two-year-old responses oh, yeah. um, are, are things that we need to be adult about because you recognize that everything has consequences and our world in ways seen and unseen is profoundly interconnected. My father was a particle physicist and he was an experimentalist. So his job when he wasn't teaching was to work in these high energy accelerators and they'd, they'd speed up electrons and blow them into the nuclei of atoms and try to break them into smaller and smaller pieces. And working, you know, when I grew up, he was, he would tell us about his work and in, in language that we could understand. And what I learned from him from a very young age is that we're all made of the same building blocks on this very, very small level, absolutely everything you can imagine in the cosmos is made of these very, very small building blocks that are identical. You know, whether it's the electron in your finger or it's the electron in the leaf and the tree outside your window. Yes. And you see that there's a sameness that yeah. is so much deeper. Yeah, it reminds me of the saying that uh, Carl Sagan, he says, we're all star stuff. So I think that's that's what he was alluding to, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think what, what he was alluding to in, in that quote is that the explosion of distant stars is what created the oxygen and hydrogen and other elements that we breathe in today. So we every breath we're taking now contains pieces of exploded stars. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that, you realize, well, what, how, how separate are we really? Of course, the way they look at that in Zanskar or in, in other Eastern philosophies is, is they talk about nothing arises independently. Everything is connected. There's nothing that just emerges on its own. There's always a cause to that. There's always, so we're not really discrete 
in a way that in the West, we usually think that we're discreet. This is a glass of water. It has a, you know, it has a boundary around it. And that's true. But if you break it down on smaller and smaller levels, you see that there were all kinds of conditions that gave rise to that glass of water being present. And those conditions are inseparable from the water and the glass themselves. So the water and glass wouldn't exist without those conditions. So you can't say that they arose of their own accord. They arose because of conditions. We arise because of conditions. And those conditions are always influencing each other. So we're always connected. Everything is connected. You can't find something that somewhere on this vast chain of causation isn't connected. And when you get that, not on an intellectual level, but on that visceral level, you feel differently about the way you move in the world because the way you move in the world is you're propelled by so many causes and you're setting so many other effects into motion that you feel more gentle in the way that you move about the world. Yeah. And how do people actually start getting more conscious of this uh, interconnectedness and this cause and effect uh, phenomenon that you just uh, described? Because it seems that people are more and more removed from that. Uh, and, you know, they're more distracted than ever because of, you know, we're living in the age, digital age, social media. We're in a kind of different, different space right now. So how can we get back to that being conscious? I think the main way is curiosity and care. Um, I run a teen program that works with about 5,000 youth every year in the school system, uh, Mm -hmm. teaching them mindfulness and systems thinking and uh, the evolution of the brain and compassion building. And what I, the, the principles that I teach them fundamentally are calm, curiosity, and care. Because if we can settle down, even just for a short time, um, we allow our thoughts to settle down, we can start observing the nature of our awareness, we can start gaining objectivity on our thoughts, what makes us tick, what we react to. When we're curious about it, we just start to see interconnection, we start to see things differently, you know, we awaken that innate human love of discovery and that primate capacity to just look at something with interest and care is to to want to live a life fueled by meaning and purpose so wanting to live a human life that matters not everyone has to save the world or you know reverse climate change or or lead the next revolution. Uh, it, it, it's not that kind of sense. It's that sense that that however I walk on this earth, it matters. That it's so the human organism is miraculous. I mean, look at how our body works. Look at how our brain works. Just the fact that we see that our eyes work is amazing. I mean, how did that evolve? And you just stop and think about it. You go, what a, what an extraordinary event. And so you start caring about your life and your impact, not from a fear-based place. I mean, too many young people now are terrified of their impact. They're angry at uh, older generations for the troubles of the world. And I understand that, but we want to engage with the world without fear. 
we want to engage with life without fear. And when we bring our capacity to be calm and our natural curiosity and our care about living a life that has a sense of richness and fullness, then that all those principles will start uh, they'll start revealing themselves to us because we'll start looking around and we'll start figuring out how things work and things will start making sense in a different way. So people don't have to do, they don't have to sit cross-legged. They don't have to do deep breathing. They don't have to do yoga. They can do it if they want, but everyone's going to find their way uh, if yeah. they, if they allow the curiosity to take them. Yeah. And in fact, you use the, you use the metaphor of, uh, of, of a journey. You actually think it would really benefit people to see their life as an epic journey. Could you say more about that? Well, I, I believe it's true. See, I believe that our lives do really matter. And it's something that when you think very carefully not about the specifics. You know, we all have things in our life that get us irritated that we don't like and issues that happened in the past. And, you know, so many people have experienced serious trauma and violence and racism and, or poverty and yes. degradation. There are very, very systemic injustices. Yeah. Because that are they are very exist. serious. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but underneath that, there's also a sense of life itself being whole, life itself being good prior to all of the hurts and harms. And I believe that it's when we get in touch with that, we see the epic nature of our lives. And that's what gives us the fuel and the resilience and the strength and the courage to respond to the injustices to heal or to to reach for resources that we need to heal and to 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 take those steps because when you're when your life starts to represent the you know heroic nature of the march of life on earth then your life is is not just a part of that but each each life is a whole it's a, it's a whole within a whole. It's, a, you know, in one of these nested hierarchies. And so if your life is an expression of wholeness and is an expression of the goodness of life, then you start elevating the whole life process. So that's what I mean by the epic journey, that it really is true. Whether you feel that, you know, you should have done more in your life. I know there are a lot of women, you know, my age or, my mother's in her 90s now, um, but her age or 10 years younger who wish they had done more. And we don't need to, we don't need to reauthor our lives to make it epic. We need to appreciate the precious nature of life itself and of the importance of us being in, in expressions of these deeper principles in a way that matters. Oh, that is so beautiful, Amy. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I, you know, and I think the reason why people get sidetracked is because they try to find the value of their life based on these arbitrary uh, factors. Right now, 
in our society, what, what do people appreciate? They appreciate, you know, status, financial, fi- financial prosperity, all these, all these um, superficial uh, uh, means of kind of measuring your worth. And I think that's why a lot of people find it hard to, to appreciate um, all these deeper aspects of their journey that you just talked about. Yeah. And I think that mostly what I find with people is they just haven't given it any thought. That too. (laughs) (laughs) It could be as simple as that. (laughs) Yeah. They think they value status and money and wealth, but they haven't really thought about it. And when they sit down and think about it, they go, you know what? It's not really the most important thing to me. It's important because I think it's going to make me more comfortable or more secure or I'll have a better friend circle or I'll be. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm observing in this climate of social media. And I'm seeing like the younger generation, like my niece, she's in her late teens, Gen Z's. I'm seeing that, 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 that shift. So, and it concerns me. So that's why I, I want to know your thoughts on that and how we can start appreciating, um, our journey from, from this deeper place? Asking questions. I mean, I think that our education needs to teach towards purpose, not what's your college, you know, what college are you going to go to? How well did you do on the standardized tests? What job do you want? But what's, what's your purpose in life? And maybe that's making your family happy. You know, maybe it's having a, a you know, a home life that's vibrant and caring, that's a purpose larger than yourself. Maybe it's innovating something to contribute to, you know, to the world. That's also a purpose, but you need a purpose larger than yourself that has to do with inner values and you need to be able to articulate it. And when I work with teens and I ask them, they, they say, nobody ever asks us that. So we need to just, as adults, aunts, uncles, mentors, parents, grandparents, older siblings, we need to start looking at what life is about. And then, well, you know, and then how are you going to get there? When we educate youth that way, they'll find their way. Um, social media does cause a lot of harm. Um, especially in terms of self-image and narcissism. Um, And it can very much exacerbate mental illness. So for parents and mentors and teachers, concerned adults, you do need to really support your young people by making sure that they're feeling okay or that they're feeling okay to talk about not feeling okay and getting support. I think the pandemic was particularly hard for young people and social media can be extremely detrimental. It doesn't have to be by default, but it's certainly. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I wish it were a double-edged sword, but right now I think because of the algorithms and the greed of a lot of the parent companies, it's stacked against the kids. Yes. Yes, I totally agree with you. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, but they did a study of um, 
Silicon Valley programmers who program who actually work at the leading social media companies. And most of them who know the inside story, they they keep their kids off social media until they're in their older teens. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So they know what's going on. Um, yeah. They know that they know the secret behind yeah. uh, the machinery, right? Yeah. And like I said, there's there's a lot of good being done there. We have an app, um, Inner Strength. It's free for teens. There is no paywall, no credit card required. And we make it accessible to, to help teens um, practice mindfulness techniques and explore and develop the, this kind of curiosity. So we're really excited about it. Um, yeah. Great. That That's great advice. And uh I, I want to end our conversation by asking you, Amy, what was your favorite memory of your trip to Satskar? I know there are a lot of them, but which one really stands yeah. out to you? Um, there's so many that stand out. I know. Out, but <laughs> there's a certain quality of like when you when you just ask that I could almost smell the air. So there's there's a quality when you're in the high mountains where the air is so pure and you feel that kind of it's a metaphor for clear seeing. It's a metaphor for what they call in Tibetan Buddhism the clear light of bliss. And you can almost feel it in the air, and it, it feels like it's a it's a metaphor for a relationship to uh, the human experience that is so bright and pu- pure, uh, without without blemish. Uh, that really gives a lot of faith. It gives a sense of that goodness and kindness of an extraordinary degree is really possible that we could be not just a little bit better, but we could actually really be better. Whatever that is for for the listeners, whatever, however you want to translate that in your own mind. But when you think of that, whatever that represents of the the highest quality of love and kindness and goodness and wisdom, you almost feel that in the elements there. And so when you said that, I was just picturing just being alone with the, the, rock mountains on both sides and the gray river and just looking at the air and it was almost like the air was dancing itself wow that's so beautiful uh, i'll bet the night sky was spectacular it was it was so bright there was one night where i actually walked under starlight it wasn't even under moonlight. wow and with the moon i had my own shadow Sometimes I'd walk under the moonlight and I'd have a shadow like during the day. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. I can, I can, I can just imagine. I can just imagine. It's probably looked like a postcard or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Well, Amy, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for writing this lovely book, which I'm sure will speak to the hearts of many people out there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I just encourage all of your listeners everywhere in the world to to just be a little kinder with yourself, be a little softer, be a little happier. It's okay. It's okay. You know, it's almost like in these times, 
I'm sure. <laughs> we we really need to hear like, that. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, there are hard things, but we're going to make it yeah. through. Yes, yes, we are. And I want to quickly mention that for um, anyone who's interested in getting a copy of Adventure in Sanskar, it's now available in all major bookstores and on Amy's website, amyadelstein.com. The link will be in the description box. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.